And our question is this. What special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the state wherein he was created? <clears throat> this evening's question has to do with a portion of covenant theology. Um, particularly, it has to do with the covenant of works that God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And covenant, covenant theology is, is really important. Um, I, think, I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, covenant theology is, is the marrow of all theology. Right? Like it's it's, it's, it's in, in, in integral. It's super important. Um, understanding this doctrine, understanding the nature of the covenant God made with man in the garden is crucial to our understanding of Scripture as a whole. And that's because, as we will see, it collars how we understand the gospel itself. Right? Without, without a good understanding of the covenant of works, we're going to have a really hard time understanding how Jesus is the second Adam, how the New Testament compares and contrasts the work of Christ and the disobedience of Adam, and we'll also not understand why it is so important to be a member of the new covenant that Christ mediates. Brothers and sisters, it's important that we learn and think on these things. Uh, God did not record them for no reason. The covenant God made with man is directly related to the covenant that God makes with all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this evening we'll consider the covenant that condemned all men by the disobedience of our first father, Adam. But praise God, by the end we will see how our Lord Jesus, the true and better Adam, has redeemed and rescued us with a new and better covenant. So with that said, I'll pray, and then we'll dive into our catechism question. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now at the close of the Sabbath day. I hope we've spent it well and honored you, but we come now to ask for help. Please help us to benefit from the word preached. By your spirit working alongside the word, teach us in the deepest parts of our heart. Help us to understand your word so that we would rejoice in Christ all the more and further endeavor to glorify you, the God of our salvation. Have mercy on us and bless us as we humble ourselves before your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so our question for this evening, I ask that you would read the answer with me. Question, what special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the state wherein he was created? Answer, when God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. Let's do it again. Question, what special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the state wherein he was created? Answer, when God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. All right, so what is the catechism asking? Right, what's, the, what's the question? That's a fun thing to say. What's the question mean? Right, what special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the state wherein he was created? An act of providence is an act of God. Right? It's, it's something that God does to govern his creatures and bring his holy will to pass. And all that God does with regard to his creatures are acts of providence. But here the catechism asks, what special act of providence did God exercise towards man? 
So we're being asked this. What special thing did God do with man after he was created? Right? So this isn't being made in his image. That was special. But, but how, what's the exact wording? Special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the state where, wherein he was created. So this is after his creation. So what special thing did God do with man after his creation that he did not do with anything else in all creation? And the answer is this. He made a covenant with man. There it is. And that raises an important question. What is a covenant? Read different theologians. You'll get some different answers, some different nuances they want to highlight. I'm stealing my answer from Samuel Renahan. He's a really good Reformed Baptist. Wrote a really good book called The Mystery of Christ. It's a Reformed Baptist view of covenant theology. It's excellent. You should get a copy. But this is my version of what he said. A covenant, particularly a covenant of works, because there's covenants of works and covenants of grace, or rather covenants of works and a covenant of grace. A covenant, particularly of works, is an agreement between two parties that involves conditions, blessings promised for covenant keeping, and sanctions threatened for covenant breaking. And a divine covenant, right, so that's what we're dealing with here, a divine covenant, a covenant between God and men, the covenant is sovereignly imposed by God upon the person or persons who enter the covenant with him. I'm highlighting that so you can see this. When God makes a covenant with men, it's not take it or leave it. God doesn't lay it on the table and man can say, no, thanks, Lord, I don't want to enter into that covenant. No, God imposes it, right? The, the human beings involved are in the covenant simply because God imposes it upon them. And in a covenant with God, there are conditions, God says, you will do this, and I will do that. So in a covenant, God sets stipulations. When it, um, so in a covenant, God sets stipulations, and those stipulations must be met by those with whom he covenants. And there are blessings involved, as I've already said, blessings involved for keeping the covenant with God. Blessings that, this is important, blessings that otherwise could not be obtained unless God condescended to promise them. But there are also sanctions. That's a penalty. There's penalties for breaking covenant with God. And he sets the penalty for breaking the covenant as well as the blessings for keeping it. And this is what God did with man. This is what God did with Adam after he was created. He entered into a covenant with Adam. He imposed an agreement between the two of them. He set the conditions that Adam must meet. He promised blessing to Adam if he kept the covenant, and he threatened curses if Adam were to break the covenant. But what kind of covenant did God make with Adam? What were the specifics? Our catechism here, I don't know if you caught it, calls it a covenant of life. A covenant of life. And it calls it that because eternal life was implicitly promised to Adam if he kept the covenant with God. Let's turn now to Genesis chapter 2. Verses 15 through 17 to see this. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There is the covenant. There is the covenant that God made with Adam. Now listen, 
I know that the word covenant is not used in this text, as our dispensationalist brothers and sisters are, they love to remind us. The word covenant's not there, but the concept is there. God commanded Adam. What did he do? He imposed a special relationship upon him. And by the way, he commanded something that had never before been commanded, so this is a special relationship that God's now imposing upon Adam. God came to Adam and he set terms before him, didn't he? The terms were these. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. There are the terms. So God sovereignly required something from Adam. Adam was to obey God and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did you catch the sanction there? The threat? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's the threat, and it's for disobedience. And I think, along with many, many, many other theologians, that the threat for disobedience implies the opposite blessing for obedience. Kind of like how the Ten Commandments work. If something's forbidden, something positive is also commanded. If something positive is commanded, the opposite is forbidden. Same here. The opposite of the curse is being promised. If Adam perpetually and perfectly obeyed God and kept from the tree, then he would never die. In other words, God would grant him eternal life. Now, Adam was created upright, but he was not yet sealed in righteousness. You say, how do you know he wasn't sealed in righteousness? Because he sinned, remember? You know the next chapter that we all know so well? So he was created upright, but he was not yet sealed in righteousness. So there was a possibility that he could fall into sin and forfeit his life. But God here promises that if Adam obeys him, then he will never die. And I think that that means that there would be some kind of probation period for Adam. Right After a period of time determined by God, a period of time that Adam had perfectly obeyed and refused to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God would have sealed Adam in righteousness and took away his ability to fall and therefore granted him eternal life that could never be forfeited. Brothers and sisters, this is a covenant. This is an agreement between God and Adam that God imposed upon him. There's, a, there's the condition of Adam's perfect obedience for however long God was pleased to keep him in a state of probation. There was a promise for blessing, for obedience, and there was a threat of curse, death, for disobedience. This is a covenant between God and Adam, or God and man. Furthermore, just real quick, we read in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, with reference to Israel, God says this, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. What does that mean? Israel broke covenant with God, and they did it like Adam did. So that means Adam must have broken a covenant. That is the point of similarity between Israel and Adam. They both broke covenants. So then the scriptures seem to indicate that God made a covenant with Adam, even though the word covenant is not used in Genesis 2. The concept is there, and that's really what matters. The concept is there, even if the word is not. And our catechism says this was a covenant of life. Again, Adam would receive eternal life for obedience. So you can rightly call this a covenant of life. Although, ironically, it's a covenant of life that brought death. And as we'll see later, this eternal life would have been one for Adam and all those under his headship. We'll get into this more, but Adam represented more than just himself in this covenant. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, 
Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So death came into the world through sin and spread to all men because in some sense, sometimes people disagree on, on how exactly to understand this, but in some sense, all men sinned when one man, the first Adam, or rather the first man, Adam, sinned. So if Adam would have perfectly obeyed, if Adam would have kept covenant with God, he and all his posterity, his descendants, would have lived forever in a world of paradise, sealed in righteousness and free from sin. So this was, in a very real sense, a covenant of life because that's what God promised to Adam and, by extension, all of his descendants. But God also threatened death for covenant breaking. Now, what kind of death? What kind of death is he threatening here? Well, I think that in light of all that we see in Scripture about the effects of Adam's sin and and what it's done to man and the world around us, I think we have to conclude that death in all its forms were threatened. Death did not exist in any form prior to Adam's breaking the covenant, and so I think we have to say death in all its forms, namely three kinds of death, physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. Physical death is the most simple. You guys know this. Adam and his posterity would be subjected to literally dying in their bodies. Right? Their flesh would give out at some point and their hearts would stop. It was not originally going to be this way, or, or rather it was not supposed to be this way, we could say in a sense. But this is the result of sin. After all, what does the apostle say? The wages of sin is death. Second kind of death threatened here is spiritual death. This is alienation from God. That's why the Bible says you're dead in your sins. Spiritual death. If Adam broke the covenant, there would be a rending apart of the perfect relationship between God and man that had had existed since man's creation. If Adam breaks covenant, there will be an estrangement between God and men. Man would become an enemy of God and become hostile to him and unable to do anything that God would count as truly good. Men's hearts would be bent away from God and toward themselves. Man's original sonship with God would be turned to hostility, enmity, guilt, and death of the soul. And this is what leads to the most extreme form of death, the third kind, eternal death. This is damnation, an eternal estrangement from God and all of his blessings and kindness. The book of Revelation calls this the second death where men are cast into a lake of fire for their sins and suffer eternal condemnation from God. Brothers and sisters, death and all it means for mankind in body, relationship to God, and their eternal destiny was threatened in this covenant. You see here, massive things are on the line. Eternal realities were on the line for Adam and his descendants, and it all hinged upon whether or not Adam would keep covenant with God. And this is why theologians, in addition to calling this the covenant of life, also call it the covenant of works. Why? It's by obedience. It is by works that the covenant was to be kept by Adam. It's not a a covenant of grace where God just freely promises something, although that does exist in the Bible. This is a covenant of works. You must obey in order to receive the blessing of the covenant. Continual 
Per- perfect, perpetual obedience from Adam was demanded. Perfect works during the time of probation was his end of the covenant. So again, the reward of eternal life would be won, would be earned, would be merited by obedience to the command of God. So again, to summarize, Adam was to keep the covenant by not eating of the tree. He was to keep the covenant by perfectly believing what God had promised and threatened. And from that believing, obeying God perfectly. And the breaking of the covenant would come by unbelief in what God had promised and threatened. And that unbelief would result in his outward disobedience. And eternal life and eternal death were on the line. Now, was Adam able to keep the covenant? What I mean by that is, was he theoretically able to do it? Did he have the ability to keep the covenant of works? The answer is yes. Adam was not created sinful. He's created morally perfect, perfect relationship to God. He was made upright, as we read in Ecclesiastes 7.29. Solomon says, see, this alone I have found, or this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright, man went his own way. God made Adam perfectly righteous without a sinful nature. And so Adam theoretically could have kept the covenant with God and merited eternal life. But there's something important to note here. And I said this already. Adam was upright, yes, but he was not yet sealed in righteousness. He was upright, but there was the possibility of disobedience just as there was the possibility of obedience. He was free to obey or disobey. He was not handicapped into disobedience he really could have kept the covenant that's why theologians often call this the time of adam's probation again he could merit life or he could descend into sin and misery but and what i confess to be a mystery he chose not to obey and i do think that it is a mystery i won't mess with you right now but i don't quite i don't know how a man without a sinful nature chooses sin it's, it's a great mystery. I don't know of anyone that's able to answer that, but I think it's one of those things where God says, this is what happened. I don't care to tell you how it happened. I'm just telling you that it happened. This is a great mystery. But he chose not to obey, even though he could have obeyed. He chose to break covenant with God. But he was not compelled to do so by any defect in his nature. God made man upright. By the way, does this not highlight the heinousness of Adam's sin? He could have done right. But he chose not to. Now, what I'm about to say, I've already said, but I want to highlight it and make it more explicit. With whom was this covenant made? With Adam only or with more people than Adam? I think the answer is yes. In one sense, the covenant was made with Adam alone. Everything hinged upon Adam's obedience, not Eve's. It was made with Adam. The promise of eternal life for obedience was made to Adam and no one else. Let me say that again. The promise of eternal life for obedience was made to Adam and no one else. And that promise was never reestablished with fallen mankind after Adam sinned. Never. Never. By the way, this is just fun to think about. Was there ever again a tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God could forbid men to eat from? No. So in a real sense, this... This promise, this covenant that God made with Adam was never reestablished 
although the curse of the broken covenant, the curse of physical, spiritual, and eternal death does remain. The covenant is never renewed, but the curses of the broken covenant do remain. So in a real sense, this covenant was made only with Adam. But in another sense, the covenant was made with Adam and all those who would descend from him by natural generation. That is all of the natural offspring of Adam. And that is everyone except for one man. <laughs> That's everyone except for the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, you, you say, why, why is the virgin birth of Christ so necessary? Be- because Christ was miraculously placed in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit so that he would be truly human but not be a natural descendant of Adam. So that's just throwing that out there. That's why that's a cardinal doctrine of our religion. As Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So in some sense, when Adam sinned, you sinned. Isn't that strange? When, When... When he sinned, we all sinned in him. So when he broke the covenant, so did we. So I think in some sense, this covenant was made with all of us. And this brings up the concept of federal headship. Learn that term. Make it just part of your regular theological vocabulary. A federal head is a covenant representative. The covenant is formally made with the head of the covenant. But that head, that representative, stands in the covenant in place for all those who are under him. And according to Romans 5.12, all of Adam's descendants are under him, for they all come from him. So though the covenant was formally made with Adam, the covenant was also made with us in Adam. Adam stood for every single one of us as our federal head in the covenant of works. And so what he did, we did in him. His obedience would have been our obedience, and his disobedience is our disobedience. The covenant God made with Adam was formally with Adam alone, but it was also with all of us. Now, to this biblical truth, some people object. I know that I did. First time I ever studied this, I did not like this. People will look at this and say, that is unfair. I didn't ask for Adam to represent me. I should get to represent myself, and I should not have Adam's disobedience imputed to me. To that objection, let me say two things. One, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? God didn't ask for your permission, did he? Because he doesn't need your permission. God is God. And so as the sovereign Lord of all creation, he has the right to impose covenants on whomever he wills, however he wills. So if you object to federal headship, you need to humble yourself and sit down and be silent before your maker. God didn't ask you for your opinion. He simply reveals in scripture what he was pleased to do. As the psalmist says, Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's one. I know that was kind of hardcore, but but here's the second one. If you reject the idea of Adam representing you in this covenant, then you have to reject the gospel. You have to reject the gospel. You'll see this more clearly in a moment. But just know this. You 
want federal headship. You want someone to represent you before God. You want the works of somebody else to be, able to, uh, to be credited to your account. That's what you want. Right? That is your only hope, to be saved from your sins and the imputed guilt of your father, Adam. Now, as I've said throughout, and as you all know, Adam broke the covenant of works. We can read about this in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, Satan, deceived Eve, and she ate of the fruit of the tree, but there was still hope. Adam might not do it. And then she took the fruit to Adam, and she gave it to him, and he ate it as well. And Adam gladly and willfully broke the covenant that God had made with him. He knew the promise of eternal life, but I am convinced that he despised it and did not believe God. If he really believed that God would give him eternal life for perpetual obedience, he would have kept obeying. He despised the promise and did not believe God, and instead he believed the lie of the devil. What was that lie? Here's my summary of it. Eating the fruit is better than what God promised. And by his unbelief, Adam disobeyed, ate, sinned, and brought the curse of the covenant down upon himself and all those who would come from him. He brought the covenant curses down upon every one of us. And this is why the world is the way that it is. This is why people shoot up schools and kill children. This is why. Because of the disobedience of one man. This is why we all die. As 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die. In Adam all we die. We die physically, spiritually, and eternally unless God has mercy and sets us free from the body of sin and death. It is by the disobedience of the one man that we see all the misery and sin in this world because sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so sin spread to all men. Or rather, death spread to all men. This is why the world is a mess. This is why there's suffering. This is why there's sin. This is why men are born with hearts that hate God. This is why men hate one another and harm one another. This is why men go to hell when they die. It's because our father, Adam, broke the covenant with God. But God was faithful, wasn't he? Adam was unfaithful to the covenant, but God was faithful. God promised death for unfaithfulness, and God gave Adam what he earned. I don't know if you ever thought about it in those terms. God gave Adam what Adam had merited in the covenant. Death. Adam earned all of this for us. Again, I say in Adam, all die. Now, by the way, that, that's where the catechism question ends. That's what happened. Why is this so important for us to understand? Why do we need to understand the covenant that God made with Adam? Here's your answer. It sets the stage and points to the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Allow me to read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned 
from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What's the apostle getting at here? Adam was our federal head, and he damned us by his disobedience. His one trespass led to condemnation for all men. His one violation of the covenant killed all of us and made us damnable sinners. But another man has come. Another man ha- has, has come of which Adam was a type. Of which Adam was a type, a foreshadowing, a lesser version of. And his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, by his obedience, makes many to be righteous in God's sight. And the apostle says this is a free gift. It is not by our works that we receive it, but by coming out of Adam and being put under Jesus Christ. Not by works, but by faith. Not by the merit of man, for we have forfeited that already in Adam. But by God's abundant grace, we can receive life through the other man, Jesus Christ. Though many die in Adam, many will be justified in God's sight and receive eternal life through Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.22, let me read the whole verse now. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And this must mean then that Jesus brings a different covenant than Adam's. Dare I say, he brings a new covenant. I hope you're seeing the significance here of the covenant language of the Bible. He brings a covenant of grace that depends on faith to enter it and receive its blessings, and not our works of obedience. This means that Jesus is the federal head of a gracious covenant. Jesus is the covenant representative of the new covenant in his blood that saves sinners. Adam is the federal head of a broken covenant, but Christ is the federal head of a kept covenant. And in his covenant, Jesus did all the work necessary to redeem sinners from Adam's covenant. He, unlike Adam, perfectly obeyed God for his whole life. He perfectly kept covenant with God through perfect and perpetual obedience, just as God demanded. Even obeying the positive law of God to go and die for sinners. 
And he did this in order to give all under his headship right standing with God. Just as Adam's disobedience was credited to those under him, so also Christ's obedience will be credited to all those who are under him. And he made atonement for his covenant people by his blood. He suffered the curses, the covenant curses from God at the cross. And he died in the place of all those who would come under his federal headship. He did this to satisfy the divine justice that Adam had incurred by his disobedience. And then he was raised from the dead as proof that God accepts his work in the place of all who were ever or would ever come under his covenant. Jesus Christ mediates a better covenant. A covenant that saves sinners from Adam's covenant. For Christ, the true and better Adam, has done all that God requires. And his work of obedience and atonement is credited to all those who are under him, just like Adam's work of disobedience is credited to all those who are born in him. And how do fallen sinners in Adam come under Christ's headship? I've said this already, but I want to say it again. How do we come into Christ's covenant? By faith alone, in Christ alone. Again, this is not a covenant of works. This is a covenant of grace. This is the covenant of grace. God graciously promises to justify the ungodly. Romans 4, 5. And to him who does not work, but believes, God justifies the ungodly. God promises, I love this, with no threat of cursing, that he will save all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no sanctions in Christ's covenant. For Christ has already bore the wrath of God in place of all those who will trust in him and enter that covenant. There is only gracious blessing for those who are in Christ. For Christ has merited their salvation for them. And listen, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that everyone's saved. I said there are no sanctions in Christ's covenant. And I saw some faces go, what do you mean? Don't people uh, go to hell for not believing? Yes, that's because of the first covenant with Adam. Not because of Christ's covenant. In Christ's covenant, there are no sanctions because Christ has already done the work, suffered the wrath, merited the blessing for those who enter his covenant by faith. Death came into the world through Adam's sin, but salvation has come to all who believe on the Lord Jesus. For Christ has worked righteousness and died for those who will believe on him. The covenant made with Adam was broken, but the covenant made in Christ was kept by him. Brothers and sisters, do you see now why you need to know this? Why you need to understand the covenant God made with Adam. How, how, how rich and glorious it is to know that we are in the new covenant and not under Adam anymore. That you have a representative before God much better than the representative that you were born with. How good it is to know that Christ has redeemed us from the broken covenant that we inherited from our Father. So know this. Those who do not believe on Christ are still under the curse of the covenant of works. They're dead in their sins. They will die physically and they will die eternally in hell. But for we who believe, for those who believe on Christ, we are in a better covenant with a better head. You who believe on Christ, be glad. Rejoice in him. Rejoice in him. 
and see how God has provided for you and taken care of you. You needed a new representative before God or you were damned. Adam is not good enough. Adam condemns, but Christ represents all who trust in him. And he is good enough. And he will save you. So trust in Christ and rejoice that you are no longer in Adam, but have been graciously put into Christ's covenant. And in him, you are safe and saved. May God help us to rejoice more deeply in the God of our salvation and be grateful for a new covenant with a better Adam. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would again, just help us to be glad that this, that this wouldn't be like just a mere theology lecture, but that we would see, praise God, I'm not under Adam anymore. Cause us to delight in Christ and rejoice in him more, we pray in his name for his sake. Amen. I'm going to read Romans chapter 